and Birth Control by Charles D. Provan, as read by Michael Wyatt. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, many free Christian resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog and containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great Discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468, 1096 or by mail at 4710 37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB for Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add, that's A-D-D, at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This This book, The Bible and Birth Control, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation bookshelf and Puritan bookshelf CD sets. If you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major Reformed library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books. Now to our reading of the Bible and birth control, which we pray you find to be a great blessing in which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible and Birth Control is copyrighted 1989 by the author Charles D. Provan and is read to audio with his written permission. And now, the Bible and Birth Control. Quote, I remember a great man coming into my house at Waltham and seeing all my children standing in the order of their age and stature, said, These are they that make rich men poor. But he straight received this answer, Nay, my Lord, these are they that make a poor man rich, for there is not one of these whom we would part with for all your wealth. End quote. That is a quote from Joseph Hall, 1574 to 1656. Introduction When I first encountered the question, Is the practice of birth control acceptable in God's sight? I responded with typical 20th century arrogance and wisdom. Sure it is, but through this book and personal conversations with the author, I have been challenged to rethink some very basic issues. Does the Bible approve of birth control? What are God's purposes for marriage? Are children a blessing, as the Bible says, or an expensive liability? Is God really sovereign in childbirth? Does he really open and close the womb? 
Can he take care of people if he blesses them with a large family? I was forced to go back to the Bible and to prayerfully consider these questions. Here I think the reader will find this book helpful. The author's exegesis is careful and thorough. Although we do not see eye to eye on everything, he has shown me that the teachings of Scripture are clearer than I had anticipated on many important points. God is sovereign, not just in salvation, but also in providing a couple with children. Children are a blessing, and many children are a great blessing. I was surprised to see how much our culture's thinking had affected my reading of Scripture. Finally, as the witnesses from history began speaking out, I realized that the blinders of our modern-day pragmatism had stopped me from seeing God's word clearly and considered the subject honestly. Let me challenge my fellow readers to give the author a hearing. Don't bring up your objections too quickly. Oh, the Onan passage can't mean that. Don't panic too quickly. Oh, no, I'll have 17 children. Or, what will our parents think? Guard against your unbelief. Oh, we will starve and trust God. There is an important message for God's people in this book. It goes against much of what the world thinks is wise and prudent. But God's ways are not our ways. It is my hope that this book will begin to lead us back to God's ways in this area. To value what God values, children. To recognize His sovereignty, He knows best how many children we should have. And to trust Him to work His will, provision, and protection in our lives. I am grateful that the author had the insight and courage to, cha- to challenge me and to seek the Lord in this manner. May God bless you as he, you take time to consider His will in this important aspect of His creation. May He be glorified as His people affirm, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Psalm 123, verses 3 through 5. The following is from uh, Pastor Todd Jawson, Donara, Pennsylvania, March 1989. Author's Note Chapter 1 of this book, Nine Reasons Why the Bible Prohibits Birth Control, is a somewhat revised edition of an article entitled The Bible's View of Birth Control. This article appeared in the Christian News of February 29, 1988. The Christian News is a theologically conservative newspaper with mainly a Lutheran outlook. Though this Lutheran outlook dominates the newspaper, it provides a non-censored forum for many differing views and contains many articles of interest to those who believe the Bible. For information on the Christian News, please write to Christian News, P.O. Box 168, New Haven, Missouri, 63068. The article is reprinted here with the permission of Charles D. Proven, myself, and Pastor Herman Auden, editor of the Christian News. Chapter 2, Two Alternate Viewpoints of Birth Control and Rebuttals of the Same, 
contains two responses to my article, both of which were printed by Christian News, and my responses to them. The first alternate, alternate, another view on Onan, was anonymously signed a concerned friend. The second, entitled Devil's Advocate, was composed by Pastor Roger Covancy of Columbus, Ohio. Permission to reprint these two responses was graciously given by Pastor Auden in lieu of a concerned friend and Pastor Covancy. Because the Devil's Advocate article is long and makes a number of points, I have added paragraph numbers for ease of reference. The scripture quotes in my rebuttal are primarily from the New International Version of the Bible. Chapter 3, Protestant Theologians and the Onan Incident, was compiled in order to demonstrate the fact that the Protestant view of the biblical account of Onan has always been till the corrupt 20th century that Onan was killed for unnatural sexual relations with his wife, a point which has direct bearing upon birth control. Charles D. Provan, Monagahela, Pennsylvania, March 1989. Acknowledgements. During the com- compilation of this manuscript, I have been helped by a sizable number of institutions and people. I am very grateful to them all and would like to take this opportunity to thank the most prominent. The staff of the Clifford E. Barber Library at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, especially Stephen Crocco and Jane Schneider. The staff of Concordia Seminary Library, St. Louis, Missouri, particularly Mike Awe and Tim Engel. Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Please let, please let me say in passing that the rare book collections contained in the above libraries are ver- veritable treasure troves of godly teaching. We highly recommend them to one and to all. Werner Barbie, Ford Battles, Kelly Del Tradici, Jim and Lisa Dodson, John Crickamere, Walter Hibbard, Todd Johnson, Dave Kudlick, Philip Long, Lawrence Marquette, Herman Otten, Tim Otten, Carol Provan. A special word goes to those whose names are followed by an asterisk, my translators. They put up with phone calls and letters above and beyond the call of duty in helping me to locate and translate passages which were of peculiar interest to me. Many thanks. Chapter 1. Nine Reasons Why the Bible Prohibits Birth Control by Charles D. Provan. This is a quote from Martin Luther. Quote, For this word which God speaks, be fruitful and multiply, is not a command. It is more than a command, namely a divine ordinance, work, W-E-R-C-K, in brackets, which is not our prerogative to hinder or ignore, Rather, it is just as necessary as the fact that I am a man and more necessary than sleeping and waking, eating and drinking and emptying the bowels and bladder. It is a nature and disposition just as innate as the organs involved in it. Therefore, just as God does not command anyone to be a man or a woman but creates them the way they have to be, 
So he does not command them to multiply, but creates them so they have to multiply. And wherever men try to resist this, it remains irresistible nonetheless and goes its way through fornication, adultery, and secret sins. For this is a matter of nature and not of choice. In the third place, from this ordinance of creation, God has himself exempted three categories of men, saying in Matthew 19.12, There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Apart from these three groups, let no man presume to be without a spouse. And whoever does not fall within one of these three categories should not consider anything except the estate of marriage. Otherwise, it is simply impossible for you to remain righteous. For the word of God which created you and said, Be fruitful and multiply, abides and rules within you. You can by no means ignore it, or you will be bound to commit heinous sins without end. End quote. Again, that's a quote from Martin Luther. Introduction to Chapter 1 by Charles D. Provan Many Christians today have not even considered the question, What does God think of birth control? It is a question too stupid to even consider in the eyes of most. After all, birth control is an American social custom practiced by most married couples in our country and in most quote, civilized countries, end quote, too. But just because Americans think that birth control is morally acceptable does not make birth control right in the eyes of God. Our study here will seek to lay a solid biblical basis for opposition to birth control. You may be surprised to find that the Bible does, in fact, say quite a bit about this widespread custom all of it negative. What we say here should not be viewed as a new idea, for it is a fact that the Christian church, since its inception, has consistently opposed birth control as a great evil. This opposition continued quite strongly down into this present century when birth control carried the day. Some theologians spoke out against the limiting of children by Christians until fairly recent times. And now, opposition to birth control is almost dead. We hope this paper will help to rekindle it and lead to God bestowing many blessings upon his people, wonderful children. Before you begin, please be aware of the fact that this paper quotes quite a few scripture verses which mention sexual matters. We have not used these verses to offend people, but have used them to illustrate various points in our argument. Please do not become upset. Rather, understand that the Bible speaks plainly of these matters. Many do not realize that all the members of Israel, including children, were commanded to hear the entire Mosaic law. This law contains many blunt statements on sex, things about which all Israel was to be informed. And this is why we feel free to talk about them in a proper manner. Some may think that we quote the Old Testament too much. However, we do not feel badly about this since the New Testament itself contains 
some 1600 reference to the Old Testament. Further, the Church of Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. In addition, in 1 Corinthians 5.1, Paul gets his rules on sexual matters right out of the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 18.8, and he was writing to converted Gentiles. As Martin Luther says, God gave us his holy law to keep men from open outbreaks of sin and to teach us the works which are really pleasing to God. That's out of his small catechism, question 159. All scripture quotes in this chapter are from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. A few of the verses we have cited are margin translations of the same version. Reason number one, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Christians should take note of the fact that the first listed command to mankind was be fruitful and multiply. This command is repeated over again in the Bible several times. For instance, in Genesis 9.1 and 35.11. Our point is this. This is a command of God, indeed the first command to a married couple. Birth control obviously involves disobedience to this command, for birth control attempts to prevent being fruitful and multiplying. Therefore, birth control is wrong because it involves disobedience to the Word of God. Nowhere is this command done away with in the entire Bible. Therefore, it still remains valid for us today. Martin Luther had this to say in regard to Genesis 1.28, quote, He has created male and female and has blessed them that they might be fruitful. End quote. Luther's Works, Volume 5, page 329. On this same occasion, Luther said, quote, Fertility was regarded as an extraordinary blessing and a special gift of God, as is clear from Deuteronomy 28.4, where Moses numbers fertility among the blessings. Quote, there will not be a barren woman among you, end quote, he says. Compare Exodus 23.26. We do not regard this so highly today. Although we like and desire it in cattle, Yet in the human race, there are few who regard a woman's fertility as a blessing. Indeed, there are many who have an aversion for it and regard sterility as a special blessing. Surely this is also contrary to nature. Much less is it pious and saintly, for this affection has been implanted by God in man's nature so that it desires its increase and multiplication. Accordingly, it is inhuman and godless to have a loathing for offspring. Some, thus, someone recently called his wife a sow since she gave birth rather often, the good-for-nothing and impure fellow. The saintly fathers did not feel like this at all. 
For they acknowledged a fruitful wife as a special blessing of God and, on the other hand, regarded sterility as a curse. And this judgment flowed from the word of God in Genesis 1.28, where he said, Be fruitful and multiply. From this they understood that children are a gift of God. End quote. Luther's Works, Volume 5, page 325. In Matthew 19, verses 1 to 9, Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees concerning marriage and divorce. The Pharisees allowed divorce for a multitude of stupid reasons. Jesus corrected their view by calling their attention to Genesis 1.27 and 2.24, telling the Pharisees that if they wanted to see what God wanted in a marriage, they should get their rules from the way God set up marriage in the beginning. Please note that marriage, as invented by God in the beginning, was set up to be fruitful and multiply, not to be sterile. Many today will say, but I cannot afford to have lots of children, and so I must practice birth control. If I don't, I will be poor, and my children will be stuck in grinding poverty. Listen to what Martin Luther had to say on this subject. Quote, Although it is very easy to marry a wife, it is very difficult to support her along with the children and the household. Accordingly, no one notices this faith of Jacob. Indeed, many hate fertility in a wife for the sole reason that the offspring must be supported and brought up. For this is what they commonly say, Why should I marry a wife when I am a pauper and a beggar? I would rather bear the burden of poverty alone and not load myself with misery and want. But this blame is unjustly fastened on marriage and fruitfulness. Indeed, you are indicting your unbelief by distrusting God's goodness, and you are bringing greater misery upon yourself by disparaging God's blessing. For if you had trust in God's grace and promises, you would undoubtedly be supported. But because you do not have hope in the Lord, you will never prosper. Luther's Works, Volume 5, page 332. We Christians worship the great and powerful Lord who created the entire world. Can we truly believe that if we obey him in this matter of being fruitful and multiplying, he will desert us? This idea is truly foreign to the Bible. God is not obligated to give us a catalog. But he promises us to give us food, but he promises to give us food and clothing and shelter. Psalm 37:25 says, "I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread." And Jesus says in Matthew 6:33, "But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you." Our dedication to God should be that of Daniel's three friends who said, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Daniel 3:17 and 18. Reason number two, children are a blessing from God, the more the better. Psalm 127, 3-5, and 1 Chronicles 25, 4-5, and 26, 
Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. And that's um, Psalm 127, 3 through 5. First Chronicles 25, 4 through 5. Of Heman, the sons of Heman, Bukiah, Mataniah, Uziel, Shubuyel, and Jeremoth, Hananiah, Hanai, Eliath, Gidalti, and Romanti Ezer, Joth, Bikashoth, Malothai, Hothire, Mozoiath, all these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, to exalt him according to the words of God. For God gave fourteen sons and three daughters to Heman. That was First Chronicles 25, 4-5. And First Chronicles 26, 4-5. And Obed-Edom had sons, Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehozabad Jeho- the second, Joah the third, Sekar the fourth, Nathaniel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Pelethi the eighth. God had indeed blessed him. That was First Chronicles 26, 4 through 5. According to Holy Scripture in Psalm 127:5, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Children, the more the better, are a blessing from God. What this has to do with birth control is plain to see. For birth control seeks to prevent children from being conceived, thereby preventing children from being born. This act prevents blessings of God from being given to people. Lest there, lest there be those who would say, those kinds of blessings I don't want, let us recall the story of Esau in Genesis 25, verses 29 to 34. God gave Esau a blessing, his birthright, and Esau sold it to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. Genesis says that by this act, Esau despised the blessing of God. What does Hebrews 12.16 have to say about Esau? It says that Esau was a godless person who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Christians of today have been so influenced by our godless materialistic culture that their view of children is the same as that of the world. Quote, children are an economic drain. They make you poor. They limit economic progress. They prevent women from reaching their potential. End quote. This is not what the Bible says. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 25.5 that God gave 14 sons and three daughters to Heman to exalt him. It does not say to degrade him or to make him disgustingly poor which is what our modern birth control advocates might have written had they and not the Holy Spirit been in charge of writing the Bible. The Holy Spirit also wrote in 1 Chronicles 26.5 that God had indeed blessed Obed-Edom by giving him eight sons. Planned Parenthood, or some of our modern so-called Christian sex manuals, 
might have used Obed-Edom as a horror story for overpopulation. By the way, I have heard of people who say that they have a quiver full of children by having three or five children because back in ancient times, that was how many arrows soldiers carried in their quivers. I am not aware of the source of this amazing and ridiculous viewpoint which may be overthrown out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. Just to go up to a little boy or girl and ask him this question, if you were a soldier and you were going to be in a battle with the fierce enemy, how many arrows would you put in your quiver? The answer would be piles and piles of arrows or bunches and bunches of arrows. So children can interpret Psalm 127, 4 to 5 better than people who already are in favor of birth control. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Which passage obviously means that the more children a believing couple has, the better. The amount of children with which a couple is blessed should be determined by God, not birth control. Dr. Luther had this to say concerning Psalm 127. This passage, Genesis 9-1, moreover, leads us to believe that children are a gift of God and come solely through the blessings of God, just as Psalm 123 shows. The heathen, who have not been instructed by the word of God, believe that the propagation of the human race happens partly by nature, partly by accident, especially since those who are regarded as most suited for procreation often fail to have children. Therefore, the heathen do not thank God for this gift, nor do they receive their children as the gift of God. End quote. That's Luther's Works, Volume 2, page 132. If Martin Luther were alive today, would he not disapprove of many Christians who view children as a bad thing and so practice birth control to prevent God from sending more blessings to them? If God wanted to bless Christians by sending them a house to live in, would people practice house control and refuse the house? We think not. And we are not aware of any people who would turn down God if he wanted to reward them with, remo- with money either. But when it comes to children, Christian principles change as if by magic. But truly scriptural principles do not change at all. Therefore, Christians should willingly receive the blessings which God has for us and not try to prevent them. Reason number three. Childlessness is an unfortunate thing. Hosea 9, verses 10 through 17, and Exodus 23, 25 to 26, and Deuteronomy 7, 13 and 14. Hosea 9, 10 through 17. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame, and they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird, no birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, 
but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. All their evil is as Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All, the, all their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. Exodus 23, 25-26 But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Deuteronomy 7:13-14. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. When God decided to punish the corrupt nation of Israel some 2,600 years ago, how did he do it? He prevented conception, pregnancy, and childbirth and killed the children who survived. God views childlessness or less children than possible as a negative occurrence, something which he uses as a punishment. Doesn't it say a lot about our dying and impotent culture, which welcomes birth control with its resultant few or no children as a great scientific achievement and a blessing to mankind? Birth control brings about a lamentable catastrophe according to the Bible. Commenting on Genesis 17, Luther had this to say about sterility, quote, Saintly women have always regarded childbirth as a great sign of grace. Rachel is rude and exceedingly irksome to her husband when she says in Genesis 30, verse 1, Give me children or I shall die. She makes it clear that she will die of grief because she sees that barrenness is a sign of wrath. And in Psalm 127.3, there is a glorious eulogy of offspring. Lo, sons are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. That is a gift of God. Surely, it is a magnificent name that children are the gift of God. Therefore, Hannah laments so pitiably pitifully in 1 Samuel 1.10 and John's aged mother Elizabeth leaps for joy and exults in Luke 1.25 the Lord has taken away my reproach thus when the world's when the world was still in a better state barrenness was considered a sign of wrath but childbirth was considered a sign of grace Because of the abuses of lust, however, this remnant of the divine blessing gradually became so obscured 
even among the Jews, just as today you could find many greedy men who regard numerous offspring as a punishment. Saintly mothers, however, have always regarded this gift, when they were prolific, as a great honor, just as conversely they have regarded barrenness as a sign of wrath and as a reproach. End quote. That's Luther's Works, Volume 3, pages 134 to 135. Moving on to the other scripture passages in our list, we can see that God promised great blessings to Israel, among them Exodus 23, verses 25 and 26, the negation of sickness, miscarriages, and barrenness. Christians and heathen both view sickness as a bad thing, and Christians view miscarriages at least caused, at least caused miscarriages, that is, abortions, as bad. But when it comes to deliberately causing one's own sterility, whether temporary or permanent, via birth control, most Christians unite with the heathen and declare sterility a good thing. As for Moses, he seems to view sickness miscarriages and sterility as bad. In Deuteronomy 7 verses 12 to 13 it gets more pointed. Moses said, God will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. You shall be blessed above all the peoples. There shall be no male or female barren among you. Once again we see barrenness, barrenness, male and or female as a bad thing. Since barrenness is a bad and undesirable thing, so is birth, birth control, since birth control is temporary or permanent sterility. Yet, in our culture, barrenness is no big deal, and people are always attempting to tell sterile couples that everything is alright, but everything is not alright. Listen to what Martin Luther had to say commenting upon Rachel's great desire to have children. Quote, From this it is clear that the very saintly women were not lustful, but were desirous of offspring and the blessing. For this was the cause of envy in Rachel, who, if she had been like other women whom our age had, has produced in large numbers, would have said, quote, What is it to me whether I bear children or not? Provided that I remain the mother of the household and have an abundance of all other things, I have enough, end quote. But Rachel demands offspring so much that she prefers death to remaining sterile. I do not remember reading a similar statement in any history. Therefore, she is an example of a very pious and continent woman whose only zeal and burning desire is for offspring, even if it means death. Thus above, Genesis 16.2, Sarah also showed a similar desire for offspring, and in both this feeling is decidedly praiseworthy. Quote, if I do not have children, I shall die, says Rachel. End quote. I prefer being without life to being without children. Consequently, she determines either to bear children or die. Thus later, she dies in childbirth, this desire and feeling of the godly woman is good and saintly. End quote. That's Luther's Works, Volume 5, page 328.
Reason number four, the Onan incident. Genesis 38, 8-10 and Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. Genesis 38, 8-10. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 to 10. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and say, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come into him in the shall come to him in the sight of the elders, and pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face, and she shall declare, "Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house." And in Israel his name shall be called the house of whom whose sandal is removed. Judah had several sons. The oldest son named Ur had been married, but was just killed by God before he had any children. In accordance with the law of God in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10, Judah told his next son, Onan, to marry Er's wife, so as to produce a child who would carry on Er's name. However, Onan was unwilling to father a child for his deceased brother, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground. A few words later we read, But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he, that is to say the Lord, took his life also. Examine the above verses and ask yourself this question. What did Onan do in the verses? The only thing Onan did in the verses was wasted his seed on the ground. That is what made God angry. If there wasn't such a stir at this obvious conclusion, we could drop the matter here, but we can't do so because those who defend birth control have come up with alternatives which suit their views. We shall now review three alter alternate explanations and show why they are untenable. Alternate number one. Onan was killed by God for disobeying his father, not for wasting his seed. Rebuttal. According to scripture, God had decreed that the marriage for his son ends any mandatory obedience for his father. Genesis 2.24 says, 
For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, if Judah had authority over Onan, his authority ended when Onan got married to his brother's widow. Therefore God did not kill Onan because he disobeyed Judah, because according to the word of God, Onan did not have to obey him. Alternate number two. Onan was killed by God because he didn't show love for his brother by having a child. He should have had at least one child before practicing birth control, and then God wouldn't have been angry. Rebuttal. Deuteronomy eliminates this reason as a possibility because it says that regardless of the man's motives for refusing to raise up seed for a dead brother, the man is not to be put to death. He is to be humili- humiliated only, shoe pulled off, face spit on, etc. Onan was put to death for what he did, while the man in Deuteronomy 25 is not. As we compare the two Bible texts, Genesis 38, 8-10, and Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, We need to ask, what did Onan do that the man of Deuteronomy 25 didn't do? The difference in conduct will explain the difference in the penalty meted out by God. And the difference is that while Onan wasted his seed, the other man didn't. Suppose the man in Deuteronomy 25 thinks exactly as Onan, saying to himself, I don't want to raise up seed for my brother, and yet doesn't waste his seed. What happens to him according to the law of God? Humiliation only, regardless of his unloving thoughts. Alternate number three. Well, Onan must have been killed because he lied to Judah. Rebuttal. There is no proof that he lied to anyone. The scripture is silent as to what Onan said to anyone. And we ought not to go beyond what is written, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. The Holy Spirit says what Onan did. Then it says that God killed him for what he did. And what he did was waste his seed on the ground. Onan was killed because he wasted seed. Therefore, birth control is automatically condemned because all forms of birth control have as their goal the wasting of seed. This, why this is just a Roman Catholic custom, and so may be discarded. But dear readers, this is not so. Space restrictions prevent us from listing quotes from all the leaders of the Christian faith who agree with our interpretation of the Onan incident. However, we do list the views of many Protestants as well as Augustine, Epiphanius, and others in chapter 3 of our booklet. We, we will here list the comments of Martin Luther and John Calvin, the founders of the Reformation, two pastors not known for advocating, quote, mere Roman Catholic customs, end quote, as everyone knows. Commenting on Genesis 38, 8-10, Luther says, Then Judah urged his son Onan to take Tamar for his wife to raise up seed to his brother. Moses here uses the Hebrew word jabam, J-A-B-A-M, which we find also in Deuteronomy 25.5, and which properly means to marry in order to beget children for the deceased brother. 
This was a very disagreeable duty, and many sought to escape it, as we read in Ruth 4, verses 1 and following. For it is indeed hard to live with a woman whom one does not love, to continue the inheritance of the brother, and to submit oneself to ceaseless toil and labor in his interest. Therefore Onan, unwilling to perform this obligation, spilled his seed. That was a sin far greater than adultery or incest, and it provoked God to such fierce wrath that he destroyed him immediately. End quote. Luther's commentary on Genesis, pages 250 to 251. Luther, on another occasion, commented on the very same passage, quote, But the exceeding foul deed of Onan, the basest of wretches, follows. Here Luther quotes 30, Genesis 38, verses 9 to 10. Onan must have been a malicious and incorrigible scoundrel. This is a most disgraceful sin. It is far more atrocious than incest and adultery. We call it unchastity, yes, a sodomatic sin. For Onan goes into her, that is, he lies with her and copulates, and when it comes to the point of insemination, spills the semen, lest the woman conceive. Surely, at such a time, the order of nature established by God in procreation should be followed. Accordingly, it was a most disgraceful crime to produce semen and excite the woman, and to frustrate her at the very moment. He was inflamed with the basest spite and hatred. Therefore, he did not allow himself to be compelled to bear that intolerable slavery. Consequently, he deserved to be killed by God. He committed an evil deed. Therefore, God punished him. That worthless fellow preferred polluting himself with a most disgraceful sin to raising up offspring for his brother. End quote. Luther's Works, Volume 7, page, pages 20 to 21. Several years ago, I purchased Calvin's commentary on Genesis to find out what Calvin thought of the Onan incident. Much to my surprise, when I opened to Genesis 38, 8-10, I discovered that Calvin's comments on this pivotal birth control passage were omitted by the editor for what reasons he did not state. I was subsequently able to locate a Latin copy of Calvin's commentary on Genesis, and the omitted section was graciously translated into English by the late Dr. Ford Battles, the translator of Calvin's Institutes. Calvin's comments are as follows, quote, Besides, he, that is to say Onan, not only defrauded his brother of the right due him, but also preferred his semen to putrefy on the ground, rather than to beget a son in his brother's name. The Jews quite immodestly gabble concerning this thing. It will suffice for me briefly to have touched upon this as much as modestly in speaking permits. The voluntary spilling of semen outside of intercourse between man and woman is a monstrous thing. Deliberately to withdraw from coitus in order to or in order that semen may fall on the ground is doubly monstrous. For this is to extinguish the hope of the race and to kill before he is born the hope-for offspring. This impiety is especially condemned now by the Spirit through Moses' mouth 
that Onan, as it were, by violent abortion, no less cruelly than filthily cast upon the ground the offspring of his brother, torn from the maternal womb. Besides, in this way he tried, as far as he was able, to wipe out a part of the human race. If any woman ejects a fetus from her womb by drugs, it is reckoned a crime incapable of expiation, and deservedly Onan incurred upon himself the same kind of punishment, infecting the earth by his semen in order that Tamar might not conceive a future human being as an inhabitant of the earth. End quote. Calvin's commentary on Genesis 38, verses 8 to 10, translated from the Latin. Reason number five, death penalties for sexual offenses. Leviticus 20, 13. If there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Leviticus 20, verse 15. If there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. Leviticus 20, verse 16. If there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Leviticus 20, verse 18. If there is a man who lies with a menstruous woman and uncovers her nakedness, he has laid bare her flow, and she has exposed the flow of her blood. Thus both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Genesis 38, verses 8 to 10, listed under reason number 4 previously. The Old Testament mentions about 20 or so death penalty offenses. The New Testament says that these examples are in an Old Testament are in the Old Testament to help Christians find out what pleases and displeases God. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 10. Verse 6 says, Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. Many of these offenses are related to sexual matters. These forbidden sexual relations may be divided into two categories. Sexual offenses forbidden because of who the potential or actual sexual partner is, for example, adultery, incest, etc., and B, offenses which are forbidden because of the act itself. It is the second group on which we intend to focus. These offenses are evil no matter with whom they are committed. They are perversions, evil in themselves. A listing of these offenses is as follows. 1. Male homosexual intercourse, Leviticus 20, verse 13. 2. Male animal bestiality, Leviticus 20, verse 15. 3. Female animal bestiality, Leviticus 20, verse 16. 4. Intercourse with a menstruous woman, Leviticus 20, verse 18. 5. Withdrawal, wasting seed, Genesis 38, 8-10. These sexual offenses are always wrong if done intentionally. We say this because 4 and 5 above may occur accidentally, as the Bible says. 
see Leviticus 15.24 and Deuteronomy 23, verses 10 to 11. In any case, let us get to the point of this section, which is this. What is common to all these five sins? The answer is, they are all sterile forms of sexual intercourse. Children cannot be produced from male homosexual activity or bestiality, even though seed is omitted. Menstruous intercourse is the most easily identified sterile time of the woman's monthly cycle. Witness the important place menstruation plays in the rhythm method. Withdrawal is meant to be sterile and is most of the time. In all these cases, the seed is wasted. So, we can see that the reason that these sins are condemned by God is because they are almost 100% sterile and oppose the command of God to be fruitful and multiply. We are not finished, however, because further examination will be useful. Let us now compare some unusual cases of Old Testament jurisprudence. Comparison number one, male homosexuality versus female homosexuality. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. The reader will note that we have included no verse on the execution of female homosexuals. This is because there is no penalty prescribed for lesbian activities in the Old Testament. This, of course, does not mean that lesbianism is okay with God. It just means that there is no civil penalty. Similar cases would be coveting or lusting, which are forbidden by God but have no civil penalty. So we see that male homosexuals are to be executed, but female homosexuals are spared. Some attempt the explanation that, well, God is just nicer to girls, end quote. We would reply that God in the Old Testament has nothing against executing female evildoers, as is evident from the fact that God has decreed the death penalty for female murderers, Genesis 9-6, female sorcerers, Leviticus 20:27, 20, female idolaters, Deuteronomy 13:6 6-9, Females guilty of bestiality, Leviticus 20, verse 16. Female adulterers, Leviticus 20, verse 10, etc. In fact, we are not aware of any sin for which God kills guilty males but spares guilty females, except in the case of homosexual activity. Is this a mistake? Is the Bible inconsistent? The answer, of course, is no. The New Testament states that the Old Testament death penalties are just in, are just in the eyes of God. Hebrews 2.2 states that in the Mosaic Law, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. The Bible prescribes death of the male homosexual and life for the female because only the male homosexual wastes seed, which once again shows that wasting seed is an awful thing in the eyes of God. Comparison number two, female animal intercourse versus female homosexuality. Leviticus 20:16. If there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Here we have another comparison of different sexual sins similar to the previous example. 
Women who mate with animals are to be killed, while women homosexuals are to be allowed to live. And what can account for the difference? Again, we see that the only explanation of the above law is that the difference is in the wasting seed. In female bestiality, the animal seed is wasted. In female, hom- in female homosexuality, while sin is indeed committed, no seed is wasted. So ends our examination of Old Testament perversions and their penalties. We may observe that all sterile sexual acts are forbidden, unless, as we have said, they happen accidentally. Therefore, since the very purpose of all methods of birth control is to make the sexual act sterile, they are forbidden too. Comparison number three. Male homosexuality versus male companionship and sex outside of marriage. Let us move into another area of comparison and ask the question, exactly what is it about male homosexuality which makes it worth, worthy of death? First, it can't be because of the mere fact that male homosexuals like to be in the company of men rather than women. For David said of Jonathan, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. 2 Samuel 1.26 Second, the death penalty can't be because of the mere fact of men being physically affectionate to other men. For John says, There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John 13, verse 23 And Paul says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5.26 By the way, let us make it crystal clear that we repudiate the blasphemous suggestions of present and past homosexuals that Jesus and David were latent or active homosexuals. May such evil talk perish from the earth. Third, Male homosexuals can't be executed because of the fact that sexual intercourse takes place outside the bonds of marriage, because according to the Bible, there is no civil punishment for sexual relations between a single man and a single woman. Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 to 29. What then is left as a reason? Only this. Male homosexuals are worthy of death because they emit semen outside the proper receptacle contrary to nature as created by God. Thus, they negate the purpose for which semen was created and poured out by God. Job 10, verse 10, Procreation. Birth control does the very same thing, and so is likewise under the curse of God. Reason number six, castration as a blemish. Leviticus 24, verses 19 to 20. Leviticus 21, verses 17 to 20, Leviticus 22, verses 20 to 22, and 24 through 25, and Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, and Deuteronomy 25, verses 11 to 12. Part A, animal castration as an injury or a blemish. Leviticus 24, verses 19 to 20. And if a man injures his neighbor... Just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. 
The Lord laid down a judicial principle for Israel in the above verses. Every crime committed against a person was to be punished by an equal penalty against the criminal. It is not here our concern to explain the present-day application of this particular set of verses. Suffice it to say that inflicting an injury on a fellow human being is clearly sinful. We intend rather to focus in on the word injure, which occurs in both verses. The word in Hebrew is mum, M-U-M, which means blemish. If you examine the various verses in which this word occurs, you will find that the scripture contains listings of different types of blemishes. Here they are, with the English words translated mum being capitalized. Leviticus 21, verses 17 to 20. Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generation who has a defect, all caps, shall approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a defect, all caps, shall approach. A blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb or a man who has a broken foot or broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. Leviticus 22 verses 20 to 22 in verses 24 to 25. Whatever has a defect, all caps, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. And when a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect, all caps, in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. Also, anything with its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord or do in, the, in your land. Nor shall you accept any such from the hand of a foreigner for offering as the food of your God. For their corruption is in them, they have a defect, all caps. They shall not be accepted for you. Note that in addition to blindness, crippledness, broken limbs, eczema, and running sores, there also occurs bruised or crushed or torn or cut testicles. God here declares that damaged or destroyed testicles are a bad thing. We think that all would agree that the lists above, in the above verses are bad things. We have never seen anyone declaring the great benefits of being crippled or blind or of having running sores. Once again, though exceptions are made for birth control. We are told in the news media and in sex manuals about the quick and easy, virtually foolproof method of birth control, vasectomy. Once again, what is a bad thing in scripture is a good thing in our culture. But we Christians should seek to find out what the Bible says, not what the latest point of view is. And the Bible says that anyone who gets a vasectomy is injuring himself, something forbidden by the Bible. As an aside, take a look at Leviticus 22, verse 24. 
This verse forbids offering defective animals to God, but according to a number of translators and interpreters of the Bible, it forbids the castration of animals as well. We see from numerous Bible passages that God cares about animals. Some view Leviticus 22:24 as a protective law for them. If this is the case, then we would say that if castration is forbidden for animals, it is certainly forbidden for people. But this point is not essential for our position. We throw it in because it is a possible argument against birth control. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.